The interview you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia on Germantown Community Radio at 92.9 FM, WGGTLP Philadelphia, and gtownradio.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Kay Wood, the host of Planet Philadelphia. Thank you for tuning in today. With me here is Linda Rosenwein, our assistant producer reporter, and today we'll be interviewing Matthew Powell Palm. We'll be talking about something which is a new way to freeze or preserve food, and I'd love if you would tell the listeners a little bit about yourself before we get into the topic. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Matt Powell Palm. I completed a, a PhD in mechanical engineering in third with a thermodynamics focus at UC Berkeley a few years ago. And now I'm a postdoctoral scholar there. And I, I run a, a startup business around this technology that we're going to talk about today. Uh, and the business is called BioCoric. And I'm sort of generically interested in the intersection between novel thermodynamics and biology, be that agricultural biology, medical biology, uh, biology in space, you name it. The reason we got in touch with you is we saw an article about something called isochoric freezing. And could you tell folks what that is? Isochoric freezing is a, a new way of approaching the, the preservation at cold temperatures of biological matter. So in, in the paper that you, you referenced specifically, uh, we're looking at the potential effects of isochoric freezing on the global food cold storage system. But I'll just note at the front end here that all of our work in isochoric freezing is generalizable to sort of any kind of biopreservation you can imagine. And so essentially the core premise of isochoric freezing is removing from the freezing process the role of the atmosphere. You know, to, to give a, uh, a sort of thermodynamics 101 perspective on it, currently, the vast, vast, vast majority of our conventional food freezing processes happen at constant pressure. And that constant pressure is, is the pressure that we all experience every day by existing here on the planet Earth uh, with the atmosphere that we have. And so the question uh, that we asked ourselves a couple of years ago in the Rabinsky lab at UC Berkeley is how might the freezing process change if instead of freezing things in an open system, we instead tried freezing them in a closed constant volume system that denies them access to the, the atmosphere. So for the listeners out there trying to sort of visualize what I'm talking about, imagine taking some food construct that you want to preserve. And instead of just putting it straight into the freezer, now you put it into a rigid high strength closed container. My go-to visualization is, is a, a shiny titanium flask. It's indestructible, uh, can withstand high pressures, non-deformable. And so when you seal the food in there, we have this perfectly closed, or constant volume system. And of course the word isochoric just means constant volume. And so the important distinction that emerges when you start to freeze things in an isochoric system is that the constant pressure reservoir that is the atmosphere no longer plays a part. Let's think about the process of freezing water in an isochoric system, because of course, most of the food that we're interested in is principally comprised of water. Imagine now taking water 
and sealing it perfectly in this titanium flask. Well, we all know if we've ever left a beer bottle in the freezer that when freezing initiates, ice expands relative to the liquid form of water. And this expansion can drive significant pressure, right? So, so in the case of the beer bottle, that pressure leads the beer bottle to explode and, and make a mess. But now imagine that instead of the beer bottle, we have this undeformable titanium flask. Well, what happens? Ice starts to expand, it starts to grow, but it has nowhere to go. It can't just push up into the atmosphere, right? And it can't break the container it's in. So what happens is as the ice starts to grow, it generates a pressure within the remaining liquid. And then that pressure pushes back on the ice. And this process proceeds continuously until the pressure in the system becomes large enough that it inhibits any further ice growth. And so what we end up with is what we call a two-phase equilibrium, where within our system, there's some controlled, predictable amount of ice, and everything else stays liquid, even though we're at temperatures well below the freezing point. When we first identified this premise, we thought, hey, maybe we could take food or a transplantable organ or, or anything you imagine, stem cells, you name it, any kind of biological matter that is subject to expiration, perhaps we could keep it cold without allowing it to actually freeze by putting it in the liquid portion of this chamber. And I'll mention that it's sometimes not immediately clear why we would want to avoid the freezing aspect. Freezing uh, has negative consequences from two points of view. One, it does universally damage biological material. This expansion of ice causes mechanical damage. And then there's also more nuanced sort of mechanisms of damage, osmotic and dehydrative in nature. Uh, if you pick any sort of, let's say, fragile food, for instance, let's take a blueberry. When you freeze a blueberry and then you thaw it, what you have left is a mushy, leaking sort of degraded version of the fresh blueberry that went in, right? And so that is a consequence, not of the low temperatures, but just of the formation of ice within the biological matter. So our grand goal here with isochoric, quote unquote, freezing, is to come up with a way to gain the positive effects of very low temperatures without any of the negative effects of the ice formation process. So that's sort of motivator one is the, the food quality. And then motivation two is that the process of freezing food is incredibly energy intensive. So the transition uh, of a given amount, a given mass of water from its liquid state to its solid icy state requires a huge energetic input. So you, as you can imagine, if we now sort of generalize this to the entire global frozen food infrastructure, it's a huge, huge, huge source of greenhouse gas emission and energy consumption. The food cold storage system takes something like uh, 5% of all of the global energy consumed on the planet Earth each year. So we're talking about huge numbers. And we were hoping that with isochoric freezing, we could both increase food quality and increase the nutritional value of the food coming out of freezing and whatnot and hack away at this energetic toll. One of the things you're saying here is that 
the food could be preserved for longer duration? Yeah, it, it, it's both can be preserved for longer and can be preserved for longer at higher quality. So, you know, if, if we dig into this just a little bit, why, why we're interested in this quality parameter, we're, we're experiencing this, this huge balloon in global population, right? And uh, ballooning in global hunger and getting the baseline sort of nutritional content that's required to meet, let's say, World Health Organization standards to every person on the planet is becoming increasingly hard. And one of the challenges here is that in socioeconomically disadvantaged environments, access to fresh food with high nutritional content is increasingly rare. So one of the things that happens when we, for instance, let's take the example of the tomato, when we freeze a tomato and allow the ice to form in it and leave it in the freezer for a month, a lot of its beneficial nutritional properties, I'm thinking perhaps most prominently it's antioxidant activity and total soluble phenolics and that sort of thing, they degrade massively. They drop off hugely compared to a fresh tomato. Whereas in the isochoric system, because we keep it cold, which you know arrests its expiration, but we don't allow the ice to form within the tomato, we see none of this nutritional degradation. So what we're pulling out of the freezer in the isochoric case is something that has all or most of the nutritional content that the fresh food had going into it. And also I think I read that you can add food preservation products in a way that you couldn't with traditional freezing, which even more extends uh, the life of the food. Yeah, now, Ding, this is a, a new frontier in isochoric research that we're just getting into. And you recall that within this system, right, some small amount of ice forms somewhere in the system that then drives this pressure. So one effect of the pressure is that it allows us to impregnate foods, should we so choose, with external chemical constituents, right? So I'm thinking, for instance, we could not only preserve a tomato at, you know, in a fresh-like state, but we could also, through leaving it in this preserved state at high pressure, pump even more antioxidants into it. So imagine uh, uh, valuable vitamins or ascorbic acid or any of these things that are naturally occurring within the tomato. We could take the beneficial elements we could put them in the surrounding media and the pressure in the system forces them into the food. It doesn't require changing the volume or any of the structural or textural properties of the fruit, but we just basically take wasted space within the interior at a cellular scale and we fill it with good stuff. Our sort of grand vision here is at the distribution scale, at the industrial scale. So we're looking at, you know, when we see giant, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of square foot refrigerated processing facilities, we want the food in those to be in isochoric containers. And then as the consumer, you can then go buy a, a tomato that is for all intents and purposes, nutritionally speaking, texturally speaking, fresh, but has been in fact stored for two, three, four, five, six weeks. It's all about this idea of building up food capacitance. This is a, um, a term that the, the USDA and even the DOD started using a lot right after COVID hit uh, because there were these supply chain interruptions in especially fresh post-harvest foods. The, the US government had this big realization of like, oh man, 
you know, we have to pay more attention to this food preservation issue because increasingly our temporal capacity to store these fresh foods that are essential to our diets is actually quite limited. Uh, and so for, for constructs like onions or tomatoes or, you know, any of the things that we aren't in the habit of freezing and then consuming, right when COVID hit, because of the supply chain uh, disruption, there was huge, massive food waste just because of this sort of simple oh, inability to preserve fresh-like products uh, and then get them to market in that same state. So our aspirations currently, both scientifically and commercially, are at the, let's call it the industrial scale, the distribution scale. I had a, a question about the life cycle. I mean, it takes energy to produce titanium vessels. And or hard plastic or whatever. <laughs> and, and what are the greenhouse imp uh, gas implications of that? Yeah. And so I'll tell you that we haven't done a full life cycle analysis yet, partially because we are, are still sort of iterating on what the, the final product version might look like here. But take, for instance, our, our newest prototype that, that we're working with here is a 20 liter container uh, built out of eighth inch thick walled aluminum 7075. So in, instead of uh, titanium, we're using space grade aluminum. So this container, especially if we're talking about a cycling time of let's say months, right? So each time you open and close it, right? There's a, there's a month between, cause that's how long we've been storing the food could easily last 20, 30, 40 years, right? So we're creating devices which themselves have incredible longevity. Mm -hmm. You know, we haven't done an, an exact, um, let's say carbon return on investment yet. And I put that in, in air quotes. But if I had to guess with my sort of internal knowledge of the carbon intensity of the manufacturing process, I would say this thing would pay itself off carbon wise within the first year or two. And then you're talking about another 18 to 28 years of use. It sounds like you're fairly early in the process of scaling up the technology to an industrial level. That is absolutely true. I will say that after the um, the publication of this paper and a, a couple of others in, in partnership with the, the USDA, the fantastic food scientists over there, uh, we have been getting a considerable degree of interest from all manner of, of large food distribution and storage companies. So, so we're getting very close to industrial trials. So that's, that's sort of the immediate next step is now translating our laboratory scale results that we've been working on the last three or four years into industry. I see from your paper, you think that the transition to this method can be easy for the food industry, but would this contribute to greater equity for low-income economies? Yeah, so, so that's actually one of our chief motivators in looking at this from a global food system perspective is in enhancing equity in food storage across the country. Because one of the fundamental differences between current food freezing conditions and the conditions required for uh, isochoric preservation is that currently the industrial standard for food freezing is minus 18 Celsius. That's considerably cold. And especially if, if you think about it in terms of the temperature differences that govern the efficiency of thermodynamic processes, if, if we imagine that we're in a low-income country that is otherwise quite hot, 
it is incredibly energy and economically intensive to maintain high volumes of space at minus 18. By comparison, we see not only equivalent but superior food preservation results in the isochoric system at minus 2.5. So this is a huge practical difference in the refrigeration infrastructure that's required of, let's say, a local government, you know, to build this out at the governmental scale. And it's less intensive in terms of the carbon it's going to output. It's less intensive in terms of the money you have to put into it. It's less intensive in terms of the, the energy you have to put into it. And then even when we think about sort of second tier difficulties that some low-income countries face, such as inconsistent power supplies, rolling blackouts, just by shifting the sort of temperature regime in which we're able to conduct this cold storage, we're, we're demanding less of the refrigeration infrastructure and making it cheaper and easier for countries with less economic and technological resources to get after it. You know, while we are very proud of the science that goes on within the isochoric chamber, at the end of the day, it's a container. It's a box. You know, and the difference uh, in sort of engineering and manufacturing input between creating one of these special boxes and creating a, you know, 100,000 square foot reefer facility that operates at minus 18 is huge. So you, you can imagine various of these, these sort of low, low income countries that, that we have in mind. In fact, many of them have even more robust manufacturing infrastructure than the US, right? So the, the, the manufacturing of the chambers themselves doesn't bother me. It's totally passive device. There are no electronics involved. It's a simple thing from a material, economic, and manufacturing standpoint to produce relative to the infrastructure that would be required for conventional freezing to proliferate in these same environments. Some of our vaccines require extremely low temperatures. That was would, just what I was going to say. Yes. And would this help with that at all? And, and the whole world's ability to get over COVID? The, the, the answer is maybe. There was that first whatever New York Times, Washington Post article that said the Pfizer vaccine was going to be need to be held at minus 80. And then I swear my, my inbox was nothing but questions about this for two weeks there afterwards. It's unfortunately a complicated and largely unexplored territory, um, but it's it's another one of those things that's that's on our to-do list. And I like thinking about the vaccine example in particular because it sort of helps to highlight the generality of the application here of what, what we call biopreservation. This idea of having biological constituents that we need to keep from expiring, it pervades just every conceivable part of our life, like obviously food and agriculture. Now vaccines, it's actually, it's a huge, huge, huge problem in the domain of transplantable organs. Like one of, one of the reasons why we have a hundred thousand person long organ transplant waiting list in the US is that we have this really simple and core inability to hold donor organs outside the donor body long enough to get them into a recipient. And it's funny because it's, it's easy to think well, hey, storing a tomato and storing a human heart, those are two different problems. But, you know, if, if we zoom out a little bit, they're actually fundamentally the same problem in many, 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 many ways in that we have two constituents that are biological in nature and are comprised of heavily uh, water. 
and the crystallization of water at low temperatures damages them. That's true of both a tomato and a human heart. So we like to, to, to think about the technology as being applicable to every situation where the preservation of something biological in nature is important. We've covered a lot of ground here. Is there something we've missed that you think the listeners should know? What I'd like to leave with is that a lot of the core thermodynamic principles that are now totally quotidian in our lives, like the way that we freeze food, for instance, are incredibly outdated. I mean, there's been no major change in the way we've approached food freezing since the advent of flash freezing in 1920 from Clarence Birdseye. So we're talking a hundred years of crazy scientific progress later, and we've changed virtually nothing about our food cold storage system. And you can find analogs to this, uh, let's call it scientific delay, in just about every aspect of society. So there's, there's this really big need to go and reinvestigate the base thermodynamic and physics principles on which we have developed the infrastructure of modern society. And that's what we're trying to do uh, here at Berkeley. And um, I hope that somebody listening to this uh, has some idea about how they might apply that general principle to some other pressing problem facing humanity. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, guys. We'll see you. Thanks a lot. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support.